You guys may be seated, and for those of you that are utilizing our children's ministry, we run that through first grade. You're most welcome to take your children there now, but for those of you whose children stay in the service, we love having children with us in the service, again, learning just the rhythms of of worship alongside of us, and so, and they can utilize their their worship guide to, to go through uh, the service with us and to take notes in the midst of uh, the sermon as well. Uh, We have been reading paragraph by paragraph through our Confession of Faith, the London Confession of Faith, and and we read chapter 8, and honestly, there's just so much here, uh, so much to savor as, as the Confession takes into consideration just the all, all that God's Word has to say about ev- any given uh, doctrine, but chapter 8 specifically deals with Christ as our mediator, what we've been singing about together this morning. And, um, and so I, I wanted to just reread that, uh, and I'm just going to start with paragraph 1 of chapter 8. It, and and there, there is in, in the pew in front of, I think, most of you, the, the confession you're most welcome to look on with me, but it says this, it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of his church, and heir of all things and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed and called and justified and sanctified and glorified. So that is paragraph one of our confession, chapter eight of our confession. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the gospel of Matthew chapter seven, Matthew chapter seven. We started looking at this passage last week, and we may finish up this passage this morning, or we may spend another week on it. It depends on how fast y'all listen to me. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, but I've titled the sermon, What's in Your Heart? That's what we, kind of, we were getting at last week. And, you know, we, for those of you who, who weren't able to, uh, to, to gather with us, I would encourage you just to go back and listen to that sermon. And, uh, and th- this morning, that's, that's still the title, What's in Your Heart? And that's what we're considering uh, together, what is on the inside. And so let me just, by way of reminder, read. I'm going to read the first 23 verses of Mark chapter 7. And then I have kind of one overarching point this morning that we're just going to spend time considering together, spend time uh, working through with just a couple of things toward the end of my sermon uh, uh, for us to, to perhaps walk away reflecting on. But But John Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he penned these words. It says, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples, that's Christ's disciples, saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they've received and hold, like 
the washing of cups and pitchers and copper vessels and couches. Verse 5, then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And he answered and said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses says, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corbin, that means a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you've handed down. And many such things you do. When he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear me, everyone, and understand. There's nothing that enters a man from the outside which can defile him, but things that which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had entered the house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that... Whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him, but it does not enter his heart but his stomach, and it's eliminating, thus purifying all foods. And he said, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that it's sharper than a double-edged sword, God. God, that it's... It, by your Spirit, discerns our hearts. It discerns our intentions, our motivation. And Lord, we confess that that should cause us to despair except for your gospel, which through your Spirit changes our heart. And we're thankful for that, and we ask God that you would help us to consider this passage again this morning. Help us to have a spirit of humility, to submit our thinking to what it says. And God, that we would all the more marvel at Christ for having spent time in it this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, we, we began to consider this particular passage of Scripture last week, and you know, for those of you that missed the sermon last week, I'd encourage you to just give it a listen again, just uh, or go and listen to it for the first time, because we're in, in many ways kind of building on uh, last week's 
message. But this morning, I, I want to hone in on, on something that Jesus says in verse 13 of our text this morning, because I think it's the key to this, this entire passage of Scripture. Uh, in, in his rebuke to the Pharisees and to the scribes for uh, condoning and, and even, frankly, encouraging the, the breaking of the fifth commandment, which is honor thy father and thy mother, right? And, and to break that for the sake of this Talmudic vow that we talked about, right? This Jewish oral tradition that had been passed down, right? But in light of that, Jesus says this in verse 13. He says, making the word of God, and this phrase is significant, making the word of God, again, speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you've handed down, and many such things you do, right? Again, what, what we're getting is just a, a snapshot of the way in which they make the word of God no effect because of the way in which they elevate the traditions of men, okay? And so, 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 these traditions that, you know, again, we're, we're seeing summarized by that Corbin, that word Corbin, this oral tradition, this Talmudic vow, because they have been conflated with God's law, they actually end up making the Word of God null and void. They actually end up making the Word of God of no effect. Now, why, why is that exactly? Is, is it because the the Pharisees and the scribes were saying that Moses, who was one of their revered prophets, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, were they saying that he was wrong when he wrote the fifth commandment? Or were they saying that the fifth commandment had expired? Were they even saying, like genuinely saying, our traditions are over and above the words of God? Right? No, they weren't. They weren't saying that. They, they, they viewed the Old Testament as the inspired scriptures despite their own legalistic tendencies, okay? And so, so it would be improper for us to, to look at the Pharisees and the scribes and say that they were, uh, they, were, they were saying that the Old Testament is not as authoritative as their oral traditions. That would be a wrong conclusion for us to come to about the Pharisees and the scribes. In fact, the Pharisees and the scribes in this day and age, they were viewed and they were uh, orthodox and conservative as it related to their reverence of the scriptures, as it related to their reverence for uh, the Old Testament. And, and the Apostle Paul himself was not shy or embarrassed to call himself a Pharisee. In fact, after his conversion to Christ, when he's on trial for preaching the gospel of God and the people that are present are the Pharisees and another religious group that was not orthodox at all, the Sadducees who denied a physical resurrection when Christ was, or when uh, the apostle Paul was on trial there, he calls himself in Acts 23 verse 6, he calls himself a Pharisee in front of this council. While he's on trial, he says that I'm a Pharisee, and by the way, I'm the son of a Pharisee. Which striking to me as well, the words of Christ. If you have your Bibles, flip over to just Matthew chapter 23. Look at the first four verses with me for just a moment. I, I'm going to revisit the latter verses of Matthew chapter 
23 for us in a moment, but I think bringing this in, and I'm going to bring a, a parable in in just a moment, help to give us some clarity regarding what Christ is getting at here in Mark 7. But in chapter 23 of Matthew, the first four verses says, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees, get this, sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, in light of that, whatever they tell you, observe that. Whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. And then here, get the kicker, though. This, this is the qualifier. But do not do according to their works, he says, for they say, and they do not do. Now, now, why is that? Why do they say and do not do? Well, verse 4, for they binding, they bind, and it's their binding, it's not God's binding. It says, for they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay, okay, they lay, not God, they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers, right? In, in other words, there's no salvation from the burdens that they're putting on people, not really, okay? And so we see here, like there, there was this, this place of, of orthodoxy that these Jewish leaders, they, they held and they, they confessed, okay? They, they were to teach the law of God to the people of God. And, and the connection that Jesus makes to them in Moses, it, it makes that obvious for it. And, and it really does make their position, the position that these Pharisees, these scribes as well, it makes that position obvious and clear. But the, pro- the problem was, is that in their pride, their oral traditions became on par practically with the words of God. It, if, it didn't, if it wasn't on par, it, it became, even best case scenario, it seems to become the main emphasis of their teaching if you follow the flow of the New Testament, okay? It was burdensome. It's how they function. Again, the main point of their religious life. And, and what's interesting to me is that Jesus says to observe their teaching as they sit in Moses' seat, which is to reaffirm Moses' teaching, but to not emulate them because they don't observe the teaching of Moses. Right? These religious teachers aren't observing their own teaching. Their traditions, their oral traditions, they obscure, they make null and void the law of Moses, thus making null and void the word of God. And that's the problem that we see here in our text this morning. Not only are many of the Pharisees and scribes not observing God's word, but they are encouraging others to do the same by binding heavy burdens on men's shoulders. Burdens, again, which can't be lifted because they are man-made laws. They are man-made customs, and they have to be kept. These man-made laws, these oral traditions, they have to be kept in the eyes of the Pharisees and the scribes for one to be right with God. Now, I told you this already, but what I want to do is give us just, I want to give kind of one point. And kids, if you're taking notes, you can, you can write this down. And we're going to spend the rest of this morning just kind of working through this and, and trying to look at it from different angles. But the point, of, uh, the point that I want to give you is this. The appearance of godliness does not make one close to God. The appearance of godliness does not make one close with God, does not make one right with God. 
Right? What, what lurked behind these oral traditions that became conflated with God's law was the appearance of godliness, the appearance of godliness. No doubt that the Pharisees and scribes were attempting to appear godly, right? They were attempting to appear godly. And not only that, but they were attempting to cast a shadow on the integrity of others who do not do as they do. But appearance can be deceitful, can it? Appearance can be deceitful. We hear the phrase virtue signaling in our society a lot, don't we? And I think that that's a clever description of much of what we see going on in our day and age. In fact, we see it often both inside and outside of the church, people that want to notify others of their seemingly righteous behavior, right? They, they want accolades. They want to be perceived as being on the right side of whatever issue, and they want to be perceived as doing the right thing. Now, the culture at this time, right, in the time of Jesus, where we're looking here, and in the time of his first advent, right, his earthly ministry, the culture at this time associated this oral tradition with the quality of one's faith. Now, these religious leaders, they signaled their so-called holiness, right? And I'll put that in air quotes. But these religious leaders, they signaled their so-called holiness through their habits of ceremonial hand-washing and the, and the washing of other household items. Now, what are we seeing here in the Pharisees and in the scribes in our text? What are we picking up from the way in which they elevate their oral traditions and condemn the followers of Christ and thus condemn Christ, right? What are we picking up in the way in which Christ rebuked them for that? What we should be picking up on is a heart posture, a particular type of heart posture that was consumed and blinded by self-righteousness. And so... We see this problem of self-righteousness here, and, and, and this was so pervasive. This was such an issue, and this, is a, this isn't insignificant, okay? This, this, this is a life-or-death sort of deal, right? So, so we, we have to listen up for this because, honestly, those of us that are, would consider ourselves religious in our church people, this is one of our common pitfalls, self-righteousness oftentimes. But this was so pervasive that Jesus made a parable about it. Look with me in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, particularly verses 9 to 14. And and this parable, by the way, is only recorded in Luke's gospel. But Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. It says, Also he spoke, speaking of Christ, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in what? In themselves. Okay? He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. Two men, here's the story, here's the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood And he prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. 
I give tithes of all that I possess. Verse 13, it's a contrast here. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, what is Christ doing here? And do you see the relevance of this to our Mark 7 passage this morning? Jesus, in, in this parable, he's very strategically taking who he would consider or who would be considered uh, a terrible person, right? the, the, the type of person that would be despised. And, and picture that for just a moment, right? Picture in your head for a moment who you think of when you think of the worst person, who you think of when you think of a despised person, right? Who you think of when you think of an individual that you want to have nothing to do with. And, and I could give you some very tangible examples, but I don't have to do that because the type of person you despise has already popped in your head, right? Now, Jesus, he, he takes this despised person in this parable, which is the tax collector, right? And he contrasts that person, the absolute worst person, with the most righteous person that people at the time could think of, Right, the person who seemed to have it all together, the person that would have been observing all of these oral traditions that have been passed down, right? And perhaps we have a picture of what that type of person is or who that type of person is, the righteous person. Right? And again, think about this. People really did see the Pharisees as righteous people, okay? People really did see the Pharisees as people that were close to God, right? They, they didn't view them. They didn't look at the Pharisees, and they weren't viewing the Pharisees as being self-righteous people. Okay? It wasn't as overt as we think it is, having read and having, especially those of us in church culture, we've heard a lot of things about Pharisees over many, many years, right? And so we're bringing that with us. Now, what Jesus does in this parable is that he shows us that oftentimes the people who give the appearance of being close to God are not actually close to God. Right? The Pharisee thinks in his heart, and he self-righteously prays aloud to God so that other people can hear him, right? Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men, right? And, and listen to how Jesus nails the heart posture of the seemingly religious. They thank God in their prayer, right? That's an orthodox way to pray, isn't it? Thank you, God. But then the second part is revealing Thank you that I'm better than other people. Thank you that you've made me so moral and so great. And this harmonizes well with verse 7 in our Mark 7 passage when Jesus says, in vain do they worship me. Right? This is a form of worship that we see this Pharisee doing here, but it's in vain. It's in vain. It's the type of prayer, the prayer that we see. Here's the type of prayer that hits the ceiling, isn't it? If the prophet Isaiah... In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, upon drawing near to the triune God, says, Woe is me, 
for I'm undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live in the midst of a people that are unclean. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then in contrast, the prayer of the Pharisee is, woe is me for I'm, un- for, woe is me for I'm clean, but I'm surrounded by sinners, right? It's a difference. There's a difference. And the Pharisee gets specific. The Pharisee has a list of the people that he despises, right? He pulls, pulls it out. And maybe you have a list of people that you despise. But the Pharisee says, thank you. I'm not like an extortioner. I'm not like the unjust or the adulterer. And yes, even this tax collector. And I picture in my imagination that he's pointing at the guy, right? I'm not like him. Thank you, God. I'm not like him. And then if that's not self-righteous enough for you, Jesus drills down even more when he describes the Pharisee pulling out another list, right? He puts away the list of the people that that he despises, and he pulls out his list of what he's done for God. And he says, Lord, here are the things I've done for you. See how faithfully I serve you. You're welcome, right? And then Jesus shifts, and he gives us this picture of, prayer of a someone who would be despised in society gives us this prayer of the tax collector and again I can picture this in my head too I can picture this in my imagination kids if you can as well he stands far off right he's at the temple like the Pharisee but perhaps he's on the outskirts of of the temple maybe he's too ashamed of what he's done to come close like the religious teacher did and he can't even lift his eyes up toward heaven In an anguish, right? He's in anguish, according to Jesus giving us the story. He prays this way God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Just take that in for a moment. Just sit in that for a moment. How does Jesus interpret this for us? Very clearly. He doesn't leave us guessing about the intent of the passage. He says that one is justified and the other is not. One is justified and the other is not. One is self-righteous, trusting in himself, and one has the righteousness of another. One has the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Jesus, he demonstrates not only that the gospel of God has the power to save the most despised of people, but that appearances, a.k.a. the Pharisee, can be deceitful. This would have been a shocking parable. Shocking parable. And the point is this, and listen closely. And if we think that our righteousness is based on anything other than the mercy of God, we should humble ourselves and repent. And if we think that we are deserving of the mercy of God, we should repent. And the question, honestly, that we're faced with this morning is whose righteousness do you trust in? Whose righteousness do you trust in? That may seem basic, but it's the most important question of your life. I know we acknowledge the gospel of God here. I know that we speak of the sufficiency of Jesus. I know that many of us would do quite well on a Bible exam or some theological quiz. But is there really in your inner person, this sense that it's only the mercy of God that you can boast in. It's only the mercy of God. 
do you realize that God is no respecter of persons and that all men, every man, must come as a beggar for the mercy of God, knowing that they offer nothing, absolutely nothing that is deserving of that mercy. The one who's a righteous busybody, right, trusting in all the things you do for God and in your appearance before man, rather than throwing yourself at the mercy of God, will hear troubling words on the day of judgment. We get a picture of those troubling words in Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 to 23. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? It's the question. And then I will, Christ will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We may claim to know God, but as another pastor put it, does God know us? Does our triune God know us? Beware of the appearance of righteousness. In other words, be aware of trusting in your own pseudo, your, your fake righteousness, your own ability to appear righteous. Now, this isn't original with me, but when I counsel folks, <clears throat> I, I sometimes draw this diagram that, that represents the, 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 the Christian pilgrimage. And, and the, diagram, the diagram illustrates that the more that we mature in the faith, the more that we recognize our own depravity, the more we recognize the plagues of our own hearts, and the fiercer, honestly, the battle becomes with our own corruptions. Yet at the same time, as we grow in maturity and we journey on this Christian pilgrimage, you grow in your awareness of the mercy of God in your life. You grow in your awareness of your utter dependency upon Him for everything, right? As we grow and we mature, our perspective on Christ crucified and resurrected it grows as well. And this, the, the outworking of that in our lives is that it humbles us. It humbles us. I cannot believe that God saved a sinner like me. And it's not because, and listen, it's not because he looked at Joey and he said, that guy's worth sa- saving. I like that guy. No. Those who, if you knew the things that pop in my head and heart at times, you would not like me very much. God looked at me and he showed me mercy because of his good character, not because of me, not because of anything I bring to the table, not because I'm savable. He looks like he's savable, therefore I'm going to save him. God gave me mercy because he wanted to. He wanted to. And for those of you who are Christians, it's not because you were smart enough to become a Christian. It's not because you have all your ducks in a row and you've seen how this all logically lays out and and you've gone to God and you've argued with Him and you've put Him to the test and He's, he's, He's... He's passed whatever it is that you you think he should pass in ways of, is this whole Christianity thing truthful or not? No, you are a Christian solely because of the mercy of God. That's it. That's it. Every one of us. If you show me a self-righteous person, 
Somebody who thinks that they're innately better than another image bearer, and I'll show you somebody that's far from God. And show me someone that not only confesses, but lives in such a way that they're cognizant of the mercy of God, and I'll show you a person on the right path in their Christian pilgrimage. Paul, writing to the church of Corinth, a church that was made up of all type of sinners, by the way, he says, for I, was the le- I am the least, and this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 and the first part of verse 10. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Right? I am what I am. And he goes on to say that any good work that he even did as an apostle was also because of the grace of God in his life. Right? All that we are, all that you and I are, it's by the grace and mercy of God. So what's in your heart? What's in your heart? Right? The answer to the, that question, it, it matters. Right? The, the, the heart is the target here. It's the target here, okay? So if Jesus is targeting the heart, and we're asking the question, what's in the heart? We know, because we're coming to the text with our dogmas, because of what we've grown to love and know about the gospel, that apart from the intervening work of the Spirit of God in our lives, that what's in our heart is just solely sin. But because Jesus is dealing with legalists in this passage in Mark 7, and because we all wrestle with being legalist and self-righteous ourselves, He doesn't leave it vague for us here in Mark 7. And I'd encourage you to look back down at verses 20 to 23 here as I'm preaching. Because if we look at this list that Jesus gives as he's addressing the heart, right, in verses here 20 to 23, if we're looking at it honestly, we see ourselves there clearly. And I don't mean we should just glance at this list and we, we give some tired verbal assent, right? Yes, that's me, and we move on. I mean, we need to genuinely slow down and, and see ourselves there here in these verses. But, but starting with verse 20 and moving to 21, and then I'll, I'll make a mention of this list. It says, and he, speaking of Jesus, says, what comes out of a man that defiles a man from from within... Out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts. Now, kids, there's a word that I want to teach you. Last week, we talked about the word legalist. This morning, the the word that I want to teach you, it's a Greek word, and the the Greek word is cardia, cardia. You can practice that with your parents at home, and and that word means means heart, okay? But but it's, it's it's not the organ that is your heart. It's not what you feel beating in your chest. That word, it, it literally means the center seat of your person, right? It's the stuff that you can't see. It's what's on the inside, and it's either washed in the blood of Jesus Christ or it's sick with sin, right? It's either washed in the blood of Jesus Christ or it's sick with sin. And so Jesus, as he's, he's trying to get at the heart, 
right? He's trying to say in, in the midst of kind of these, these people that are obsessed with the appearance of godliness and washing things and washing this and this ceremonial thing and that ceremonial thing and, and trusting in their own abilities to keep all of these oral traditions, Jesus, he, he cuts through that and he says, let's, let's take a look on the inside. Let's take a look on the inside. And we see here, verse 20, verse 20 and 21, the very first thing we see, right, for from within, out of the heart, there's the word, cardia, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts. So, so where do the evil thoughts come from? Come out, out of your heart, right? They come out of the heart. Now, this isn't to negate external spiritual attacks from our enemy who's the devil. This isn't to negate the temptations and pressures to think on things we shouldn't because of of what we're exposed to in our society. But those external pressures, they often harmonize with what's on the inside, which is what makes our Christian journey such a fierce battle, right? But keep reading. Again, staring at verses 20 to 23 because we see adulteries fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things, it says, all of them come from where? Within, Within and defile a man. You can't wash these sins off like you wash your hands. You can't do that. You can't wash them off through any ceremonial prescription given by a religious leader. This is the kind of stuff that sticks. It stays put and stays put on you, but it spreads. It's contagious, but it stains. One of the roles of God's law is that it demonstrates this to us. It demonstrates this to us. It it not only defines sin for us, God's law does, but it shows that we're stained, that we're tainted by sin inwardly. Now, a few things to note about Jesus' list specifically, okay? First, this is an, it's an interesting list, right? It, it's not comprehensive, but it's diverse. It's a diverse list. And, and there are different degrees of sin that we see on here. Contrast an evil eye, which is envy, okay, is, is kind of the def, you know, evil eye. It's the definition of evil eye here, envy. Contrast that with murder, right? Or, or consider covetousness against adultery, okay? But this list, while not comprehensive, it's given in such a way that it demonstrates a few things for us. And, and these are the things that I'm, I'm not, um, you know, don't rush to shorthand this. I'm going to send this out in, in the Monday message. But there's, there's a few things as we just continue to consider this text for another week that I want us to see as it relates to, again, this list that the Lord gives as he's cutting through this pseudo-righteousness, this obsession with the appearance of godliness Right? And, he, and he gets to this place where he's saying, what's on the inside matters. What's on the inside matters. And, and kids, be mindful of that, right? You, you may um, 
be obedient to your parents and you may be nice to your siblings and you may uh, say the right things at the right time. And those are all good things. Our outside behavior should con- con- uh, conform more and more with what's going on the inside. But what matters is, has Christ saved you? Are you a Christian? Has he washed your heart clean, your, your inside clean through his blood, through his gospel? Are you trusting in Jesus because you know that your good behavior and you're obeying your mom and dad, that's not what makes you right with God. It's Jesus alone that makes you right with God. But consider these things as it relates to this list, right, that Jesus gives. First, as we look at it, none of us are off the hook. Not one of us are off the hook. Right? This is the condition of every human heart. It's given in such a way that it utterly destroys self-righteousness. Right? That's what Christ is getting at in this passage. He is destroying self-righteousness. If you think you're doing okay, look at the list and then consider the holiness of God. Right? Don't consider the holiness of another person. Right? Don't, cons- don't compare yourself to another person and think, well, I'm doing okay compared to that individual. Right? Look at the list and then think of the holiness of our triune God. Think of how uncompromising his holy character is. And if that doesn't humble you, if that doesn't shred your self-righteousness, then you're not properly reflecting on the holiness of God. So start over. Start from the top. All right. Secondly, This list demonstrates that it's God alone who defines sin. That it's God alone who defines sin. Man has no authority to do that. We we can't invent out of thin air what morality is and what morality is not. Our triune God, creator of heaven and earth, has determined the law, and the law is according to his own good, unchanging character. So God defines what sin is. I don't define what sin is. You don't define what sin is. Third, if a man's heart is the problem, which according to our text this morning, it clearly is the problem, man can't change his own position. In other words, the problem can also be the remedy. The problem cannot also be the remedy. The answer is not look deep inside yourself. The answer is not find your true self. The answer is humble yourself and look outside of yourself. Humble yourself and look outside of yourself, which gets me to the last observation as it relates to this passage this morning. Jesus, who has clearly diagnosed the problem of the heart, is also the remedy. Jesus is the remedy. So we don't look to ourselves. We don't look to another fallen creature. We've established that this is the condition of every human heart. And so another person is not your salvation. We need someone who is unfallen, and that unfallen person is Jesus, who is the Christ, who's truly God, and he's truly man, and he upheld God's righteous moral law, and in him is where we find our refuge. In him is where we find salvation, and it's in him alone that the Spirit of God by the Word of God truly takes our heart, our sin-sick heart, Right? That the Bible says is stone apart from the intervening work of the Spirit, and He gives us a heart of flesh. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer and thank Him for that? God, we thank You for the clarity of Your Word.
And God, we ask that you would strip away from us any sense of moral superiority. God, any remaining vestiges that we may have that we are trusting in ourselves and doing just fine, that God, that would all be stripped away, that we would see the state of our hearts, our inner person, the center seat of our person, that we would see that through the lens of your law, which is to compare ourselves to you. You're holy, holy, holy. And help us to remember that unchanging reality. And God, let that motivate us to flee to Christ. For those who may be here and they've never done that, they've never trusted in Christ, I pray that you would save them. And God, for those of us who have over the years lost perspective, God, I ask that you would restore a proper perspective that we are what we are because of your mercy in our lives. And we love you and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.